0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Well hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, May the thirteenth. Friday the 13th. Remember that? Remember? Scared the hell out of me when I was like eight years old back in the 80s. Anyway, uh, hopefully it will not be an unlucky day. This is actually Wednesday the 11th that I am recording this because I'm getting ready to leave to go down John Bush's exit and build. And by the time you're hearing this, I'm probably presenting down there on Building your empire while there's crumbles. But uh, I wanted to get all new shows out for you this week if possible, and I was able to do that. Uh, So no rewinds this week. We do have the expert council on a Friday instead of a Thursday, but hey, at least it's brand new content. Got a great lineup of the experts for you today. Uh, Ron Paul's uh, guy, Chris Rossini, actually is gone this week on vacation. And so he doesn't have a segment for me. Fortunately, I had a segment in the can from him, a great one. Uh, Ron Paul's going to talk about why we simply need to repeal the entire year that was 1913 and what that's all about. Dan McAdams, along with Scott Ritter, who we've not heard from before over there, are talking about why sending more arms to Ukraine is not only foolish, but it absolutely guarantees more overall deaths. And then Chris will reinforce... The abolishment of the income tax and Federal Reserve, which is Ron's lead segment. Uh, again, back to just, maybe we just need like an abolitionist movement for 1913. Like, let's just make 1913 like it never existed. Because 13 is unlucky. You don't put a 13th floor in a building. You got it, you know. All right, next up, Dr. Ken Berry will talk about the reality of cured meats and the FUD, and it is FUD around nitrates. Tim, the toolman cook, will give you a top 10 storage li- uh, tips list for garage organization. And we won't pick on Tim for the way he says garage is a Canadian. But we'll want to, but we won't do it. Amy Dingman will talk about unschooling. This is a segment that after I hear what Amy has to say, I'll have my own thoughts on. I am a fan and I'm not a fan. And I'll explain what the hell that means when we get to it. Darby Simpson will talk about establishing pasture well, there really isn't one yet. You know, a big bunch of bare dirt out there, and you want pasture for pigs or cows or chicken or something. How we get pasture when there ain't no pasture? And Jack, me, myself, and I, I'm going to talk to you about, well, the Lightning Network. From a standpoint of what you don't see coming, but should. And I'm anchoring this with a quote by one of the most famous entrepreneurs in history. Long since dead, so it ain't Elon Musk. Henry Ford once said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said, faster horses. And I don't think anybody at the time that Henry Ford was building out his first factory understood how radically, I mean radically, the world was about to be transformed by the automobile. I I mean, just couldn't see it. What is going to happen next? With Bitcoin and the Lightning Network enabling a global trans-border monetary network that, yes, runs on Bitcoin, but allows a person to send dollars from the United States and a person in Japan to receive yen for it to happen in seconds, practically for, not for free, but practically for free, if you think about what you're getting in return for it, for a few pennies. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Lightning really does. We can send Bitcoin, but we can also, because of the nature of Bitcoin, Bitcoin. I've had people ask, why not just use one of the other, you know, point of sale coins? Like, you know, name a coin that's fast and cheap instead of doing this. Because of settlement in actual global currencies. So, Japanese currency, uh, Chinese currency, US currency, the euro the peso, et cetera. Well, I don't want to use that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't, but maybe the person that you are interacting with does. Maybe the person who's here working their their their, their absolute butt off that's sending money back to their family abroad needs the family to get the money in the local currency. Maybe that, or maybe businesses need to do this. People are thinking way too myopic with this. This is a complete replacement For the MasterCard network, the Visa network, the SWIFT system, international banking, all in one. And there's a reason. There's a reason it will win. And it was a reason I didn't even understand until this week. It was a reason I didn't even understand when I talked about it on Monday. I didn't even get it yet myself. And I had an epiphany. I had an epiphany this week. I'll tell you all about it in my Anchor segment. But just ruminate on this till we get to it. If I had asked people what they wanted... They'd have said faster horses. With that, let's go ahead and kick it off with Ron Paul in the Liberty Report Highlights of the Week.
2: And I can recall talking about this very early on when I first started in campaigning and in politics. But they always got a a loud applause. And the Fed and the income tax repeal, 1913. It's still very popular, except it's a minority of people, uh, you know, in Washington. The people in Washington can't do it. They'd be out of business. They'd be out of work. And all the recipients would be pretty pretty much annoyed because that's what they live on. And uh, they spend, they tax, and they inflate. And this is a system that's been around for too long. And there were a lot of people, good people, that uh, opposed what was happening with the income tax in 1913. But they snuck that through as usual. And it was just going to be a little bit. You know, 1% on a couple of rich people. And we've heard that story before. And then it turned into this monster on the way they can control people and the way they can use the tax code to force business people and others to do certain things or they will be punished, you know, by the taxing authorities. And we've seen that in the last administration, uh, the last Democratic administration. They used the tax code to punish their political opponents. Take for instance, there's a lot of concern right now about inflation. People are worried about inflation, but they never, hardly ever, hear anything on television that would explain to them where does the inflation come from. It's always, uh, you know, either Putin or uh, uh, Putin or Biden's fault. Well, it's the Federal Reserve's fault. It's the people who want the money. It's their fault too. The first thing that I was going to ask you about is
1: something that just happened. And that's President Biden. He, he went out and he made an announcement.
0: Another week, another $800 million for Ukraine. Looking at this
1: massive amount of aid, Scott, over the past few weeks, A, what do you, what do you make of
2: it? And B, do you think it's going to make a difference?
0: Well, clearly, um, this is far too little, far too late. I mean, the time to uh, have armed uh, Ukraine uh, to a level sufficient of uh, hopefully deterring a russian military attack not defeating it uh was before the russians invaded um i can say with absolute certainty that even if this aid makes it to the battlefield it will have zero impact on the battle and joe biden knows this his generals know this um you know the, the it's impossible for an army even one as capable as the ukrainian army to receive new equipment um, and then try to train their people to a level of tactical proficiency um, so that it has you know, a, a bearing on ongoing operations. This won't happen. Um, more than likely, most of it will be destroyed before it gets to the front lines. And once it gets to the front lines, and this is the harsh reality, asking troops to use new equipment for the first time in combat is a death sentence. So all Joe Biden is doing by sending this equipment in is guaranteeing uh, the death of those Ukrainian soldiers who seek to use it. And even if the equipment does become operational and is used in anger against the Russians, um, you know the death of more Russians isn't going to change the reality of what's happening on the battlefield. Uh, the Russians are winning. They're going to win. And there's literally nothing that can be done by the Ukrainian military or the United States or Europe to, to stop this. All we're going to do is kill more people. There are a lot of
3: years that we could point to that were detrimental to uh, American freedom uh, but none sticks out more than the year 1913 because it was in that year that both the income tax and the Federal Reserve were created. I mean talk about a one two punch because at that once that began Americans earnings no longer belonged to them. They belonged to the government first. The government would decide how much of your earnings you were allowed to keep with the income tax. But it got even worse because what you were allowed to keep after that would be under relentless attack ever since 1913 from the Federal Reserve because then they would steal what was left via inflation it ended up creating uh, the biggest government to ever exist, which is the most ironic thing in the world, that this place, which was known as the land of the free, which I doubt even kids are even taught anymore, has now the biggest parasitical class to ever exist. And now that we're a 100 years into this so-called system, the parasites are acting like vultures You know, scrambling around to feather their nest while they still can because the host is getting weak. And, you know, uh, just yesterday you had Scott Ritter on, and he was talking about how it doesn't matter how much military equipment you send over to Ukraine. It's not going to make any difference. It'll most likely be destroyed. But do you think that the military contractors care if it's going to be destroyed? No. They're getting this taxpayer money, our money, to make them just make more and send more and destroy that uh, so they don't care and we just went through this with a big pharma all those billions in vaccines that are now going to waste people do not want them they're trash do you think they care they got their taxpayer money so this is this, this is what 1913 created a parasitical class. They're like vultures picking away at every dime that we have. But you know the dimes
1: are running out, and you can. Okay, there was there was supposed to be like a couple more seconds there at the end with uh, Chris's thoughts, and I I don't know what happened. It's weird. In the editing program, you can see the wavelengths of speech, and that there's supposed to be a sound there. Where it cut off, there was still a couple more seconds. Where you could see the wavelengths of sound, but they were dead. They didn't play. I, I don't know. Uh, so I, I I pulled them off so that you wouldn't have a you know a four second pause there at the end. But I, I think you get the gist of it. C- kind of my thoughts on this. I, I know it may be hard to accept. Kind of the middle part there. Uh, Damick Adams talking to Scott Ritter about how us sending them weapons only guarantees more deaths. But I'll tell you why. In addition to Scott's explanation of sending people into battle with weapons they've never really really trained with or used before, you're going to prolong the war. If you prolong a war, there's more deaths. The war's over, but it's not over. And, and what I mean by that is all of this narrative that Putin really messed up, he, he's getting defeated, whatever. If that was true, they wouldn't be still doing hysterical about it. we become become Baghdad Bob, like I said the last time I talked on this. Putin has taken the entire eastern rim of Ukraine, from from Mariupol all the way up to to, uh, to to the north northern border. He's taken the exact territory he set out to take, and, and my my instinct here is there's a little piece of it left that they still want to take, and that he's seriously mulling over, rolling southwest and taking Odessa and locking Ukraine off from the sea and turning Ukraine into a, a landlocked nation to then go back to the negotiating table and say, hey, so do you, do, do, do you want to negotiate or do you want to keep listening to Uncle Scam? Um, and that further prolongs the war. I said in the beginning of this, it's not rooting for one side or the other. It's just math. It's just strength analysis that the best case scenario, once this thing kicked off, once it was pushed and provoked and made to happen, is Russia takes the the Donbass region and uh, takes it occupied. Well, why would they give it back? What, what do they get by giving it back? What what good will come from giving it back? And they completely control it now. The, Kiev is safe, right? It's safe. That's why Bono and Jill Biden and Justin Trudeau are hanging out there because it's not being attacked. You, what the Russians did, they went in and they hammered the Ukrainian military. They hammered it everywhere that it was. They disrupted communications in the country, and then they they, they went and took the, the territory they actually said they wanted. And, and the TV can keep lying to you, but as I said, Sun Tzu said, no nation has ever benefited from a prolonged war. The longer a war goes, the more people die. And if you know the outcome, and all you do is prolong it, you know, Did the United States benefit from the Iraq War? Did, he, did, did Afghanistan benefit from the, uh, uh, the, the our war in Afghanistan? I mean, if you want to look at this, way, the Taliban won. We lost in Afghanistan. We lost after 20 years. But Afghanistan didn't win. Afghanistan suffered for that 20 years of war. The United States suffered for that 20 years of war. Iraq suffered for that 20 years of war. The United States suffered for that 20 years of war. No peace dividends, like I talked about last time. Prolonging a war doesn't change the outcome. It just increases the death, the suffering, and the misery. And while we sit here with our economy wrecked, and Biden has now blamed, in order, the COVID is why we have inflation. Oh, no, wait. It's Actually, it was Trump. Then it's the COVID. Uh, and now it's corporate greed and Putin. I guess the next thing he's going to blame will probably be white supremacy for inflation. You watch and see if it doesn't happen. But Dan and Scott are dead on with that. As to the abolishment of 1913, be a good place to start with abolishing the entire damn government. Uh, next up, Dr. Ken Berry, uh, talking to you about some FUD. That's fear, uncertainty, and doubt for those who don't know about cured meats.
4: Hey Jack Spearco and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Shudra. Shudra writes, while listening to your talk on the live stream at Jack's workshop, you said something in passing that made me sit up. The salting pork, that salting pork to make bacon isn't processing the meat, even if you use nitrogenized salt. Are you talking about the so-called dreaded nitrates that everyone uh, says are so bad for you in cured meats? Is it a myth that these are bad for you, or is nitrogenized salt something else entirely? Are... Small goods, such as pepperoni and salami made from nitrates, good or bad for you? Love everything you do to educate people about the proper human diet. Okay, great question, Shudra. So first of all, human beings have been uh, processing or curing meat for at least 4,000, if not 5,000 years. Now, that does not make it ancestrally appropriate. I think you have to go back to at least 15,000 years. In order to be able to call something truly ancestrally appropriate. But uh, anything we've been doing for four or five thousand years cannot be that bad for you, or we would have stopped doing it a long time ago because uh, ancient humans, unlike modern humans, were pretty damn smart and they had lots of common sense and they paid careful attention to what happens when they ate one thing versus another thing that because it back then, you know, it was kind of life and death. You didn't just get to be fat and diabetic and have a fatty liver and have high blood pressure and take a handful of pills. You either kept your shit together and got your shit together or you died. And so I, right off the bat, the fact that we've been doing something for 4,000 or 5,000 years makes me much more comfortable that it's probably not as dangerous as we're led to believe it is. Secondly, when I went started doing the research that went into my YouTube video about just this very topic, is eating processed meat bad for you? Is eating bacon bad for you? Uh, basically, you cure pork with salt. Now, it can be sodium chloride, but it can also be sodium nitrate or any of the other salts. Any of the salts will cure the meat. And indeed, we've been using saltpeter for a thousand years if not longer, which is the the nitrogenous or nitrogenized salt oh that's number one, so again, people a thousand years ago weren't stupid. they would have quickly realized, hey, every time I eat this, I get a heart at- I have high blood pressure and have a heart attack uh, I shouldn't eat this so but they didn't make that determination they kept doing it, and indeed we still do it to this day so. If you're worried about nitrates in your food, then you should definitely avoid the list of vegetables that I talk about in my YouTube video about processed meat because they are much higher in nitrates than processed meat. This includes beet greens and and the juice from celery. These things are sky high in nitrates, yet uh, plant-based doctors will tell you, to drink beet juice and beet green juice and to drink celery juice, even though they have far more nitrates in them than than bacon. And they're exactly the same nitrate. They're no different. In fact, if you ever buy uncured bacon <clears throat> at a grocery store in the United States, it actually has more nitrates in it than the cured bacon. And you're like, wait, no, that can't be possible. Yes, It is possible. Here's how. The federal government, you know how wise and august they are, right? They have decided that if you use natural nitrates that come from things like celery juice to cure the bacon, then you can say that the bacon is nitrate-free or that it's uncured, even though it does contain lots of nitrates and it is cured. Thus saith our federal government, I shit you not, look it up if you don't believe me. That's one fact. Now, another fact is there are actually ongoing clinical trials right now that are looking at using some form of a nitrate pill to give to people with high blood pressure to help them lower their blood pressure because the nitrates in these pills and also the nitrates in bacon break down into something called nitric oxide in your body. And nitric oxide is known to lower your blood pressure. And so the very nitrates that they're telling you not to eat in bacon, they're telling you to eat in large amounts in the form of celery, celery juice, beet greens, beet juice. And they're actually trying to find a pill that they can get a patent on and therefore make billions of dollars That contains nitrates. Oh, let me once again say, I shit you not. And the federal government says that nitrates that come from celery juice are nitrate-free, even though they're full of nitrates. So, the take-home answer, Shudra, is enjoy your bacon and your pepperoni and your salami. They are not bad for you. Humans have been eating them for thousands of years. And the medical system that tells you to avoid the nitrates in meat also tells you to ingest the nitrates in celery juice. And when they get the FDA approval for their nitrate pill, they will write you a prescription for the very nitrates that they told you to avoid in bacon and salami and pepperoni. So processed meat is not bad for you. Again, I have a YouTube video about this subject, and in the show notes of that video, I've got all the research links that you can actually look up and read for yourself and perhaps even print out for your dumbass doctor. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys
1: next time. So I have a bit of an addition on this one before we go to our next segment, and and here's what I've got for you. Number one, everything he told you is true. Number two, I I want you to think about the concept of natural nitrates. well they're all natural nitrates. they all come from nature. when they say natural they mean veg- vegetable derived I find that to be really interesting. Um, and, and I mean my last thing on this is I don't even like the way we use the term processed food, okay because if you if you're gonna say well don't eat processed foods, well then don't eat sausage. Right. Sausage is meat that is not in its natural form. It's ground up or chopped up. It's mixed with spices. Often two different animals are combined together. I made one time. It was a lot of work, but it was worth it. It was really cool, but I had to shoot a lot of them to get enough to do it. I made squirrel sausage. Now, squirrel is not fatty enough, so it was squirrel and pork sausage. And, and the pork that I used was almost exclusively fat. But okay, so now I've mixed up two different kinds of meat, and I've used some seasoning. Let's say salt, uh, black pepper, and coriander, I believe is what I used in, in that. And, and so now I have a processed food. But when I say processed food, I'm talking about what? I'm talking about food that comes in a box, and we read the back of it, and it's multisyllabic. It comes you know has like forty seven syllable words in it of things that I don't even know what they are. But if we technically if we do anything to food before we eat it, it's been processed. I guess technically cooking a steak is technically processing food if we put seasoning on it. No? Okay. So if I grind the food up and I put the seasoning in it and I cook it it's processed but if I leave the meat whole put the skin put the the seasoning on the outside of it and cook it in a pan it's not processed is that what it, wait a minute see what I'm saying? I think this whole no processed food thing needs to be we need a new word for it We need a new word for it because everything other than a pure whole chunk of something is processed. I would guess if you want to be that strict, well then when I cut the animal up in pieces before I cook it, it's been processed. No, Jack, that's crazy. Well, then really how different? How is it different to grind up some meat, mix it up along with some salt, pepper and coriander, then to cut a piece of meat and sprinkle salt, pepper and coriander on the outside and cook it? Explain it. How is it different? I just cut it into smaller pieces by grinding it. That's all. And I've emulsified the fat if I made sausage right. Anyway, soapbox over. Let's go on to some great storage tips uh, and organizational tips for keeping stuff in your garage, Tim. Garage. Let's not make fun of them, but here it comes.
5: Hey, guys. Toolman Tim coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another expert counsel segment. So hey, let's dive right in. So this week's segment comes from an email I got from Martin in the UK, had a whole bunch of organizational issues in his garage wanting to know how to become an organizational ninja. I ended up putting a, a, a great big long email together for him and so I thought I'd condense it down for you guys and share 10 of my top tips for organizing garages, storage spaces, and just fixing messes wherever you find them. So number one, first one that I have found that has worked really well for me in my garage is to buy full cases of consumables. So things like brake cleaner, things like washer fluid. What I do is I have a specific spot on a shelf for a four pack of windshield washer fluid. I bring it home. The reason I buy it in a box is because it stores better, it carries better, and I it's not some kind of odd item that needs to sit up on a shelf. It's a box. When you get to the last one, you throw the box out, put the last one on the shelf. Just helps keep me way more organized. Number two, look at everything in your garage. Can you replace two items with one? Or can you replace a bigger item with a smaller item? For me, that was getting rid of my great big cast iron table saw and switching over to a handheld circular saw with a straight edge. Doesn't work for everybody, but take a hard look at everything in your garage and what can you eliminate or combine into uh, one item instead of two? Here's another great one. Magnets are great. So if you guys, you know those magnetic parts, little parts trays that you can buy? Those are, you can get them for cheap. And I'm sure Harbor Freight practically gives them away sometimes. Now, what most people think about is, hey, if I spill them, stuff won't fall out. But you can literally hold those upside down or sideways to store stuff in. So if you've got a lot of parts or things and those magnetic trays are always sitting around on your bench, take them and slap them to the side of a metal filing cabinet or a metal bookshelf. They're not going anywhere and that's totally unused space there. Or use magnets in general on that space to store other metal tools. Now the next one that took me a lot of years to realize was keep garbage cans and garbage bags everywhere. I always make sure I have garbage bags in my garage and I have, uh, you know, it's a small garage. I got two garbage cans, one in each corner. And that way, whenever I have excess garbage, it doesn't end up on the floor or on a shelf or on my workbench. It goes right in the garbage can. I can pull the vehicle in, clean the vehicle out, and it always has a place for it to go. Next, uh, use open shelving instead of closed shelving. Everybody thinks, well, if I have open shelving, it's going to look cluttered and everything. Well, here's the thing. Two reasons. Well, three, ease of access. You can grab things without having to open a door. You can see what you have on hand, but most importantly, if they're open cabinets and cupboards, you're more likely to keep them organized than if you have a closed door that you can throw everything else behind. Number six, I keep a bunch of random, well, not random, they're all the same size Rubbermaids underneath of my workbench. The reason for that is simply so that I always have a place for something. They're all labeled. One says automotive, one says electrical, one says heating, one says camping, and all of those things, you just, so if I have something, I don't know where it goes, it goes into one of those bins. So it keeps it off the shelf, off the floor, off my workbench, and it goes right into the place where it should go. Now, here's another one. This one I got from my dad, number seven. If you're looking to use up space that you don't normally use, what he used to like to use was jam jars or cheese Whiz jars, and he would take the lid off and put a screw through it up to the uh, underside of the floor joists in the basement or out in the shop, and then he could screw his uh, see-through glass jar full of whatever the hardware was right up to it. Label it or not, you could see through it, and it was up out of the way where you're typically not going to knock it over and break things. Uh Number eight, standardize with storage containers. So if you're using five-gallon buckets, use all the same five-gallon buckets. If you're using, what, 30-liter Rubbermaids like I am right now, for uh, those of you that <laughs> speak Canadian language there, standardize. So buy all of the same so that all your lids work, all of your they, – they all stack nice. They all push in good and it makes it way easier to keep things organized when you standardize. Melt crates are another way to do that. But yes, whatever you choose to, to store and organize with, standardize it. Uh, number nine, look for unused space, areas that you don't think about. The most popular one is, you know, up in your rafters. So go in your garage and look, turn and just see where is unused space. Might be between the the roof joists or the, the roof rafters themselves, but up over into your rafters is a great place. Another one, if your garage happens to be uninsulated, is between the studs themselves. I've gotten really good at finding things that fit in there and then making hangers or hooks. So you got an added benefit of it always has its spot. Plus, it doesn't stick out. You don't knock it over and break things. And number 10, when you're storing things away for the winter, take the hardware. So say you've got an outdoor table that you're not using. When you take the legs off it, turn around and put the hardware in a Ziploc bag and then tape it to that using painter's tape or something like that. Because I can guarantee you there's been many a time that I've put that kind of hardware away wanted to find it, and I don't remember where I put it. So dad taught me that one too. Tape it to the lag of whatever you're putting it away, and then you have it. So that's it. That was top 10 tips for garage and storage organization. I really hope that helped. Always enjoy dropping by here. If you guys want to follow up with me, send questions to Jack, that would be great. Uh, Run by toolmantim.co. That's the easiest way to find out about what I'm up to. Or Come by and check out the workshop podcast uh, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Thursday's Repairedness, The Art of Home Maintenance, When Help Isn't Around the Corner. Saturday's a catch-all. We do all kinds of cool, interesting preparedness and independent living topics. And then, of course, Sunday is kind of my flagship show of the week. I usually interview somebody from around the preparedness and homesteading world. So, yeah, guys, take a minute, drop by. Come by, hang out with us at the workshop, and as
1: always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. And yeah, I'm picking on him a little bit for the way he says garage. I don't, I don't really mean it though, and I'll tell you why. I say certain things differently than, you know, let's say the majority of people say them, because I grew up in certain regions, like North Florida, which is sort of like Southern Georgia, and, uh, the coal region of Pennsylvania, and occasionally I let out a use instead of a y'all. Or something like that. And it's, it's regional dialect. And I think that if you actually make a deal about it over somebody's regional dialect, you're, you're kind of a dick. But among friends, picking on each other. If you want to see what it's like to be my friend in real life, you should be following me on some social media channel. Whether it's MeWe or Float or whatever. I've been posting some of my um, interactions with real-world friends by text message Kind of going at each other. Today I put one up that involved Nicole Sauce. Yeah. Yeah. I told her how traumatic she made things for me. It, it was funny. Anyway, moving on. Let's uh, actually, that would have been Wednesday because this is Friday you're hearing this. Anyway, next we're going to hear about unschooling from Amy Dingman. What exactly is unschooling?
6: Hello, TSPers. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website, and I'm back to answer another question you gave me about homeschooling. This question is from Joe. Joe asked, we are considering homeschooling or unschooling for our children. They are still pretty young. Can you give me a breakdown of what unschooling is and what does it mean for each age? Thank you for your question, Joe. And I'm going to tell you, Joe, there is a joke that says if you ask 30 unschoolers what unschooling is, you will get 45 different answers. Defining unschooling has become a little bit tricky because everyone has a different definition of what unschooling is, and some people get really caught up in those labels. So if I was to try and define unschooling for you, I would say at the heart of it, unschooling is learner-led. It's what do you want to learn about? and how do you want to learn about it? It's not necessarily following all those lists that say a child should learn this at this age and use this certain curriculum. So that would be unschooling. Traditional homeschooling would be more This is what we're going to learn, and this is how we're going to learn it, and it's mostly through curriculum that mom and dad have chosen, and they teach you from. Sometimes traditional homeschooling is even set up more like traditional school with hours and subjects and grades and all of that. Unschooling is more your kid is coming to you and saying, I want to learn whatever, and them being more in charge of their learning and the exploring of that. And you are more of the guide or the facilitator. It's really more of a partnership than a top-down kind of thing. So your kid may come to you and say, I want to learn how to put a motor in a car. I want to learn how to build a tree fort in the backyard. I want to hatch out chicks. I want to start a little side business. I want to spend all day... Baking and decorating cakes, right? So they are kind of like, this is what I want to learn, and then we dig into it and figure out how to make that happen. That's unschooling. Now, having said that, there is a lot of overlap in methods. In my own experience with my own kids, we were, we were really too unschoolish for traditional homeschoolers, and we were too homeschoolish for hardcore unschoolers. I wasn't structured enough for most, most homeschoolers because we didn't have a lot of structure in what we were doing. But because we did use a math curriculum for a good chunk of time and because I did expect that my kids learned how to write and I occasionally assigned them papers to write and help them with that I was too structured for some unschoolers. You know, you may think it's really important that your kids learn to read, and I do think that's a really good life skill to have, but you may not learn that by using a curriculum. You may just decide, we're going to spend a hell of a lot of time reading, and that's how my kids are going to learn to read. That's how we learn to read at our house. So there is a lot of overlap in methods. There there are people that do a little of both, a little homeschooling, a little unschooling. Sometimes we just call it eclectic because we're all kind of doing what we want to do, what works at the time. You may have an hour of structured, this is what I want you to learn as your parent, and then the rest of the day is yours to do with what you want. I know a lot of people who do that. Unschooling is really where kids set their own goals there generally aren't any hours for school. You understand that learning happens all the time. In unschooling, subjects generally aren't separated into history, into math, into science. We're just learning all this stuff all the time. We're learning from life. That's what unschooling is, learning from life. So what does that look like at different ages? I would say when your kids are younger, it's, it's really playing and exploring and Lots of hands-on projects and lots of Fun in the kitchen and field trips and traveling and park days because you understand that learning happens all the time. You don't have to sit down in a desk. You don't have to sit down on the couch and have mom and dad lecture you about this is a bug or this is dirt or this is paint. You are going out as a kid and you're learning that. You're finding the bug in the yard. You're digging in the dirt. You're splashing in the mud. You are learning and you're soaking that all in because kids really are little sponges And they're soaking in knowledge all the time, even if it looks like they're just staring up at the clouds or looking at the trees or climbing a tree or digging in the dirt. They are learning about their environment and sucking stuff in about that all the time. When your kids are older, I would say unschooling is your kids spending the day in the garage, learning how to build a guitar or how to put a motor in a car or... Weld a deer stand together. I'm pulling things out of our own life here as I'm going through this. And they're learning that because it makes sense in their life. It's what they want to do. It's not because someone said, you are now in grade nine. We now have to check off the box that says shop class. So you are going to do these things. Do you see the difference there? And again, in most homeschooling families that I hung out with, There was a lot of overlap in methods. No one was completely one way or the other. So I I would say don't get too caught up in the labels. Use structure when you need it. Have freedom where you need it. And understand, there are kids who really love unstructured learning, and they thrive in that environment where you say, run free and learn all the things. They love that. There are also other kids who hate that environment. They want to know what they're learning. They want to know what the plan is. So part of figuring out how you're going to homeschool your kids is figuring out who your kids are and, and how they thrive. And you may have a kid who is all about choosing what they want to learn, and they go out and they find a certain curriculum to learn that, right? And then people are like, wait a second, are you an unschooler or are you a homeschooler? Because you're using curriculum, but you let your kid choose what they were learning The biggest thing to remember is that your kids don't care what you call your method. Once you get into homeschooling, you will find out the labeling of the method that you are using is a parent thing. It's an adult thing. And you will find that parents bicker back and forth about what to call what you're doing. And really, your kids could care less. They just know they're not at the public school. They don't really care what you call your method of schooling. The last thing I would say is if you really want to dig into what unschooling is, I would recommend that you read some books by John Holt. And that is a person who is really considered the father of unschooling. And he first came up with that term unschooling in the 70s, I believe. And here are a couple quotes from him that might explain unschooling for you. He said, children learn from anything and everything they see, they learn wherever they are, not just in special learning places. And another thing he said was, people should be free to find or make for themselves the kinds of educational experience that they want their children to have. So that's that's kind of where unschooling came from. So I hope you found that helpful, Joe. If you have any more questions, feel free to send them to Jack. Otherwise, you can talk with me at my email, which is amy at com. Send in more questions for me. I love getting your questions. Have a great day, you guys.
1: So I don't tell anybody what to do. Okay, And if somebody completely 100% freestyle unschools, fine. I personally don't think it will work well for most people and most children. I would say that, for instance, my grandson, if we were to allow him complete freedom, he would learn a lot. He would do well. There's probably things he wouldn't learn that it would be better that he did, but I think it would be okay. I don't know that it would be optimal, but I think it would be okay. I don't think it would serve as being considered good enough by his parents to allow us to keep homeschooling him. So that's a totally different thing that if you're doing your own kids, you don't have that problem. But I would tend to agree with them as well. So it won't ever be a conflict. My granddaughter, if you did not put structure on her, she would spend all day watching TV shows and watching kids play with toys on YouTube and shit like that. That's all she would do. Now, she's... Just about to be six, so I mean, you know, it's not like that big of a deal or anything. But personally, I think there are certain things that humans should learn so that they can learn. Okay? Does that make sense? Like, things you should learn so that you can learn. You should learn how to read, and you should learn how to write, and you should learn how to do basic mathematics. Like, those things are have to be's. Those are things that people, you know, you'll use this one day as you're studying advanced placement calculus and you're going to go into a career where you're never going to use it ever. Uh, that shit happens all the time. But being able to do basic mathematics, understanding your, your multiplication, division, division, subtraction, and addition, you know, 1 through 12 in your head, and being able to know them and be able to do basic long division, basic uh, multiplication and all that. I know everybody has a calculator now, but it's still – It's a skill set that I think you need to have. Being able to read, being able to understand language, being able to use language to communicate through the written and spoken word, you need that. And I think it really helps to have a basic understanding of the concept of science and basic scientific principles, the real ones, not the fake ones they have on TV all the time that tell you why why you should go get a shot that was just you know, you could get it. It's completely safe. And then two weeks ago, they pulled it and said, or a week ago, no, the Johnson & Johnson one actually causes clots. Oops, sorry, we're going to pull that. Oops, sorry if you got it. Yeah, um, that's not science, but basic science. With this, you know, I, I really think people need to know the scientific method so that when somebody says, well, science says, you say, okay, well, how would you use the scientific method to say this? Well, We're not supposed to do that, right? Yeah, maybe that's why I don't like homeschooling. Like, I think you need that. I think some basic historical context as well. And I don't think you need to know all of history, but knowing you know, a, a few different periods of different histories of the world, different parts of the world in their history, gives people a much broader context. If you give a child that, then I'm fine with giving them the freedom to learn anything else they want to learn from there. And the other side of it is I do want to preserve for any child the ability to pursue a university degree, if it's right for them. I am not worried about whether or not they're going to get into Harvard or Princeton or Yale or whatever, or MIT. A child that is going to grow into a young man or woman who is going to take that course, you could not stop them if you wanted to. They have to have a certain aptitude, drive, desire, and intelligence to do it, and you will never take it from them. So I'm not worried about that. There are a lot of people, though, that I believe if they're not given some impetus as a child to learn, they fall well behind the curve on the basic command of the language uh, and mathematics and the other core subjects. And so as long as that's met, I don't care what they do. So with my granddaughter, we still have to push at times, right? We're getting her, we're teaching her. To set aside time to learn, and then to commit to that and get it done. Which is, you want to run a business, you got to be able to do that. You want to be an employee, you got to do that. You want to run a homestead for yourself and not work and have the other stuff. You still have to be able to do that. You want to raise a family, you still have to be able to do that. That's a skill in of it itself. And and we actually, I think, push them a little harder than a lot of you know government school uh, families would, because we do not let them do nothing during the summer. We will give them maybe a couple weeks off, and then our deal is you do one subject through the summer. And that usually means they're doing a subject that's at least a grade ahead of where they would be if they were just in government school. And we'll tell them, you have a choice. And this is an interesting choice to let them have. This is actually, to me, a form of unschooling because they get the choice. You can do any subject you want, and you, you, you but you're going to probably want to do one of two. A little advice here. You don't want to do the subject you least like. Because you only have one class in that subject that you least like. So you can dedicate yourself to it so the part you struggle with, you don't have to worry about anything else. And by the time summer's over, you've knocked out that whole grade of that class. For My grandson, it would be like the English and the writing and stuff like that because he doesn't like to do that. Or you want to do the one you enjoy the most because it's your summertime. It's up to you. And you know what's going to happen if they do the one they enjoy the most when it comes time to get back to doing the other three subjects. Damn it! I wish I would have done this. And you learned. And I mean, that's a big part of unschooling. It's not just self-directed learning, but allowing them to make mistakes that don't have, you know, life-altering consequences. It's something I don't think we do enough as parents anymore: is allowing our children to make mistakes that will cause them discomfort, that they will regret, but they're not going to die. They're not going to have their arm amputated. They're not going to end up in a hole in the ground. Uh, they're not going to end up being beaten with with whips and chains or something over it. It's just going to be uncomfortable. We learn from making poor decisions and dealing with them. You see see what I'm talking about? So my deal with them is not even about unschooling. It is it really takes you no more than two hours a day to do all of your schoolwork. You can take four hours to do it, and then you're the one that screwed yourself out of two hours of freedom. In the time beyond your schoolwork, when your work is done, you do whatever you want, and my grandson spends a ton of time learning. I will see him with his iPad. I'll go look at it. Sometimes he's watching a baseball game or something, but usually, he's dig- he's really into big cats and stuff like that. He's digging into like National Geographic uh, documentaries. You know, back when they actually used to make documentaries instead of practice wokeism. It's it's really interesting to watch him become a self motivated learner. And so that's why my philosophy with teaching kids is training them to teach themselves. And I think if you can do that, I don't care how you get it done. I really don't. But I don't, I personally, and I know I've had people on that are unschoolers and they love it, I personally don't think full-on unschooling is the right course for the majority of people. If it is for you, God bless you, go forth. Let's take another one. Um, how about converting bare land into pasture with Darby Simpson.
7: Hey there, everybody. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life, back to answer another question that came in via email, this time from Matthew. Matthew asks, what are some recommended grasses and plants for establishing new pasture on bare ground? Matthew adds that this spring, his wife and he will be converting 1.2 acres of previously row-cropped land into pasture and silvopasture. And they're wondering what would be a good seed mix for pasture and animal health. Looking around online seems to result in all kinds of variations. Some additional details. They live in north central Iowa, zone 5A. Uh, previously, this ground was conventionally uh, rotated in corn and soybeans. Matthew says he's not worried about chemical residues, and we'll circle back to that, Matthew. Uh, Eventually, they'll split this up into four or five sections with trees and swales. His initial animals that will move over the land are a couple of cattle and some meat ducks. Possibly pigs in time, but um, he kind of wants to know what's the best way to get started. And Matthew, the best way to get started, the very first thing that you should do is go do soil samples and see what you've got out there. Um, If this is conventionally row cropped Ground, like I have converted here, and we've converted over 80 acres of ground. Um, the soil organic matter is just terrible. Uh, sub 1%. I've got a lot of yellow clay. Um, you know, some heavier soils, and it's, it's just been, it's just been farmed to death. Literally. There's, there's nothing in the ground. Um, so I'm glad to hear you say that what you're going to be doing initially are, are cattle. Um, and ducks, okay, that's fine, but cattle, like that's how you're going to repair the land. Um, yes, sheep could do it as well, but really cows are the best way to go. Uh, and you get some, some pretty quick return. Now, you, you mentioned doing a couple of cattle. Quick sidebar, don't go get two great big cattle for 1.2 acres of, of ground. That's, that's probably going to be pretty poor in terms of performance and forage. That it's going to produce, uh, I would maybe get, you know, one bigger cow and, and one, one smaller cow, one that would finish, you know, the first year and then another one that would finish the second year. They, they do like to have a buddy. So I think having two is good. You're going to want to have a backup plan for feeding them with hay. If you want to do 100% grass fed, you can supplement with alfalfa pellets, uh, you know, uh, beet pulp or molasses, anything like that. To get them some additional energy and calories but you're going to have to supplement and you know long term two cows and 1.2 acres like that's really pushing it just want to be up front and honest with you uh, you're going to be supplementing their feed so just keep that in mind even when this ground is booming you're, you're going to be supplementing their feed but they are absolutely the best way to repair the land so if you can get away with you know putting up some temporary fence or even permanent fence around this ground so that you can uh, keep those guys on this particular piece of ground and kind of maybe bust it up into some quarter-acre sections or maybe even eighth-of-an-acre sections and rotate them through there. Maybe you're not doing daily rotations, obviously, but if you could do every two or three days or whatever, uh, that's going to do you... Loads of good. Now, you talked about the chemical residue. Actually, the chemical residue here is going to be your friend because you're going to have some leftover fertilizer out there. Not a lot, but there will be some. And, frankly, you're going to need it. Um, you may have to fertilize additionally when you plant. Yes, I just said you may have to fertilize with conventional fertilizers depending, again, on the quality of the ground. Like, it may be so bad that if you just go plant grass out there and you don't feed it somehow, conventionally or organically, it may really struggle. Now, there's a number of ways you can do that. Uh, you can use chicken manure. Uh, you can use turkey manure. You could bring in compost if you wanted to and spread it around out there with a uh, manure spreader. Uh, if you've got neighboring farms nearby, anything you can get your hands on. Would, would be a benefit. Um, now, when you get the soil test back, what I, what I'm going to tell you is it's kind of a multi-step process here. Um, and I'm leading up to your swales and your trees, so just hang with me here. Um, most likely, if that organic matter is really bad and the soil is as bad as I'm imagining and that it might be, I would tell you the first thing you're going to want to do is is to plant an annual Something, yes, that the cows can graze. Now, I don't know about ducks, um, because I would tell you to look at like a, a, a dwarf, uh, sorghum, Sudan grass, uh, some millet, things of that nature, um, you know, that cows are just going to want to munch on, and it produces a lot of forage on a small amount of acreage. Uh, if you wanted to sow it early in the spring, you could plant oats and then you could go back in and plant this other stuff behind it. You may have to do this a couple of years. I've done this both ways. I've gone out and just planted grass and it struggled. And then I've, I've gone out and I've, I've planted like ryegrass and then the, you know, the sorghum Sudan, um the millet, uh, other annuals to graze, and I did that for like two or three years on this one particular piece of ground, and then I planted my grasses, and boom, those grasses took off. So this isn't a real simple question of what do I go plant. It's how do I get my soil prepared so when I do put in my perennial system, it's going to flourish. So with all that being said and all that done, you're going to want to put a really good mix of stuff out there you're going to want a couple of different types of clovers you're going to want two or three types of, of fescues and to fight free fescues um you, you can look at like timothy orchard grass uh maybe a little bit of alfalfa i use about eight different mixes um or sorry eight eight different plant species in my mixes and it's it's roughly not quite it's about 60 40 grasses to to legumes but you always have something growing. You always have something coming on this way. You know, uh, early in the spring, for me, like, you know, the orchard grass just takes off. I've used a perennial ryegrass um, before. Uh, they they come up first thing in the spring, and then your, your clovers are kind of coming in right behind them, and then you get into the drier parts of the summer. You've got the fescues coming on that stockpiles really well headed into the fall. So there's there's a lot of different ways you can go about this, but that those are the things I would tell you to stick with when you get to that point. Um, and work with a seed salesman. Uh, I would tell you like you're you're close enough to me. I would I would really tell you to look into Byron Seeds. I know they've got some seed salesmen in the uh, state of Illinois. And those guys are super knowledgeable. Uh, And, in fact, if you want to email me, I'll try and get you connected with one of them. Um, Really helpful guy that could help you put together a particular plan for where you're located, your particular zone. Uh, You know, you get, like here, they'd say, well, if you're north of I-70 or if you're south of I-70, that cuts right through the middle of Indiana. You want to use this kind of clover versus that kind of clover. Those are the details that a seed salesman would really be able to help you with. Um, so, if again, email me Darby at GrassFedLife.co. I'll be happy to try and get you connected uh, with that seed salesman so he can help you put together a specific plan for your property. But I'd plan on doing annuals at least at least the first year. And to build up that, that that soil organic matter. And don't be afraid to use some kind of fertilizer. It doesn't have to be chemical. can be organic. But definitely don't be afraid to fertilize anything you put out there. You know, if you put sorghum, sudangrass, it takes a ton of nitrogen. It just uses nitrogen like crazy. So you may have to put some nitrogen out there to get it to take off. But that's going to be the fastest way to repair the soil. Build the uh, the organic matter so that you can get your perennial system in place. Here's why this is all important, leading up to your, your, your swales and your trees. This is something that, um, you know, Darren Doherty said to me at, at PB3. Actually, his wife said it. We spoke together at PB3 back in 2016. And his wife talked about where they planted trees and a lot of times these trees would fail and struggle. And then they kind of went through this process I just talked about. And she said what they learned was you never want to plant a $20 tree in a 50 cent hole and that has always stuck with me. And if you go out there and plant trees before you've got these grasses established and that soil is alive and teeming with microbes, it's they're going to struggle. They're just going to struggle, your whole system's going to struggle. So have some patience, take some time and uh, do it the right way. I hope you found this helpful. Hey, to learn more about me, check out grassfedlife.co for lots of free resources and Some of our farming courses. Thanks for the questions. Keep them coming.
1: So I I just wanted to add to this one a thought that I had recently that I think is very profound. And for all of the brilliant grazers out there, Darby himself here, Alan Savory, someone you don't think of as a grazing manager but really is, Jeff Lawton, uh, Etc. All of, uh, Dale. I can't think of his last name. Dale. Something. Man, really, really sw- switched on guy with holistic rotational grazing. Um, something I've never heard said. That's absolutely the case. Grazing systems become perennial. Period. Grazing systems must become perennial, and there's a reason. If we if we graze a system. So that we are taking a, a third of the, uh, of the new growth, trampling a third of growth, and leaving a third of growth. The third's method of grazing, which is good grazing. Even people that don't do holistic grazing, don't do heavy rotational grazing, they just kind of move like this field, that, they're rotating, but not the way we're talking about. That's kind of the gold standard, is a third, a third, and a third. Okay, if you're growing an annual grass, and you're grazing a third, trampling a third, and leaving a third, and then that, that, that rotation is coming back several times a season, how much of that annual grass is going to put seed heads on, drop those seed heads to the ground, and reseed itself? And the answer is not much. And I thought about this, and I kind of had an epiphany with it, that, well, this is why grazing gets rid of so many weeds. Most weeds are not perennial. And if a weed is not perennial and it's not allowed to go to to seed, it can't reseed itself and it will atrophy out in a season or two. And what will survive and what will take over is perennials. Clovers, alfalfas, medics, perennial grasses, forbs, and herbs. It will be a perennial system and about the only thing that will self-reseed are annuals that the cattle don't really, or the ruminant doesn't really eat very much of. So you will create perennial pastures just through grazing. And that's an interesting thing. And these perennials in these grassland systems have roots often that will go down 15, 20, even some grasses, 30 feet of root mass. And if you want to talk about pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, it's a hell of a way to do it. If you want to talk about drought proofing, it's a hell of a way to do it. With that, let's go ahead and take, uh, well, it's time for my segment. So on my selection, or my section, I should say, for today's Expert counsel episode, I wanted to talk to you about something I cannot get out of my head. And I talked about it, and it, it, it caused, it's part of why Monday's uh, life feed went so long and ended up being two shows, and that's the Lightning Network. But even since then, and even though I should have put this all together then in that episode where I talked about how, We can actually use, let's say, an email address to create a connection that causes Lightning payments to be enabled on any website. I want to point out some things. Number one, that's not your email address. Because somebody said to me on uh, my YouTube video, well, if I turn Lightning on on Exodus, they have my email address. Right now, they don't have any information about me at all, no KYC, no nothing. That's not how that works. Um, Exodus, I don't even think, uses an email address. But... If you use an app where you enable an email address that allows the recipient to receive lightning uh, transactions, that email address is whatever you want it to be at that app provider dot whatever. Okay, it's not your personal email address, so it's still anonymous. I just wanted to clear that up. But you know, I, I showed you guys that technology. I talked about that technology. I explained like once you can make it as simple as implementing. Using email addresses, any app developer, any website developer that can develop any kind of complex website or app in the first place can integrate Lightning is easily or more easily than developing the technology that it's going to go on itself. Well, it doesn't have to use that. It can, there's a lot of different ways we can use Lightning addresses and Lightning invoices to enable and empower the Lightning network across technology. But it's bigger than that. I I was listening to, uh, I think it's called Bitcoin Audible with Guy Swan, and he recently covered an article, and I'll try to find it and add it to the show notes for you guys today where you can listen to because it's amazing. And he was talking about using Lightning to replace things like the Visa network, the MasterCard network, the global SWIFT payments network we've heard so much about recently. And there was something in there that clicked for me that it went all the way overboard into, oh my God. Michael Saylor's actually right when he refers to Bitcoin as the TPC. T, T, TPC <laughs> I'm sorry. As the TPCIP of money, right? So uh, TCPIP is, is a protocol that, that literally runs the entire internet. The entire internet runs on it. And so no matter what you're doing, you're building on uh, TCPIP. And in this episode, Guy reads an article, then he comments and commentaries on it. It's very, very uh, good. But they talk about the global cross-payments networks that exist in the world today and why they're so expensive and why they're so slow. And, And the upshot, the short answer is that, number one, you have all these different jurisdictions and all these different pieces and parts within it where... If I'm sending money from here to Sri Lanka, back to my family, if I'm an immigrant, for instance, it doesn't necessarily go from the United States to Sri Lanka. It might go through three or four different jurisdictions before it gets there. And the more primitive the final jurisdiction or the originating jurisdiction coming back, let's say Sri Lanka to the United States, the more potential hops there are in there. But the bigger thing is, and I never really thought about this, the form of the money itself in dollars, euros, whatever, Sri Lanka, whatever Sri Lanka uses, or the Philippine peso, or whatever. All modern currency is a liability. Okay? One more time. All modern currency is a liability. How are dollars created? They're loaned into existence. Dollars are, in fact, IOUs. So the global payments cross-borders networks of the world trade liabilities, meaning that if there's any sort of problem... While I'm holding the basket of transactions, Bank X in the middle of the transaction, the pr- transaction is going from Bank A to X to Z to Y. Okay, and I'm X, and I'm hol- like, Bank A hands off the money to me, and I'm holding the transactions for a period of time. If something goes wrong, like a global co- currency disruption, I'm holding the bag for this. Or if one of the jurisdictions in, in between changes something. or like There's all these things that can cause me to have a liability. Now, the next bank in the system feels the same way. So they want to be sure everything's copacetic before they take it, and they also want to know where the hell it's going, and they want it to be sure it can go there as quickly as possible. You literally don't want to hold on to the money any longer than possible during this transactionary period because you're holding a basket of liability. But you are going to hold it longer than you want to because you want the money that comes from doing it, and the next party feels the same way. And there's more to it than that, but just think of it that way. If we're handing a liability through a payments network, everybody wants to be sure of everything before they touch it, move it, or finalize it. And it will that can't change. Then the code that runs all this, it's been updated and all, but it goes back to the 70s. No one even, like there's very few people that even write in this computer computing code anymore. It's archaic and outdated, and it's by design. Now, on top of it, if if you want to build a technology to run on the Swift network or run on the Visa network or run on the MasterCard network or run on any of the bank's payment networks, they have to approve you to let you in to write a technology to work for them. So you might think, well, I'm on the Visa network because you take Visa on your website. You're not on the Visa network. You have a merchant account provider that's really not on the network themselves. They're plugging into a thing, and they're processing transactions for Visa on one side, you on the other. And Visa's processing the transaction for the, the user on the other side and maybe some local bank that issued a Visa card. But no one can build technology. So I can't build an app and integrate Visa into the app. And you can understand why, because now it could be a debit card on the Visa network, but it could be a credit card. Now it's a liability of a liability transacting. So you can understand why they wouldn't want to allow that. Multiple reasons. One, it's clunky to develop on. Two, it's a liability for them. Three, they're worried about their security because they don't secure their network the way something like Bitcoin does. right? And, And four, why would they want that? You're competing with them. Why would they want to let you use their network to compete with them? Okay, now let's take this over to the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network it has liquidity provided, okay? In other words, the, the way that it can function and work and guarantee the transaction by every node putting up some stake. They put some Bitcoin on both sides of their node. You don't have to know this to use it. You can download like Exodus or Wallet of Satoshi or whatever, and you can just start using Lightning, But if you want to run a node, you have to fund both sides of your node. So again, you got this little computer, it's sitting, it's plugged into an interconnection, it's running transactions, it's routing transactions, and you put a thousand bucks on both sides of it, USD value in Bitcoin today. That's a fixed amount of Bitcoin. Bitcoin goes up or down, the collateralization goes up or down, but the amount of Bitcoin remains constant. So the, so this network, instead of being secured by liabilities, is being secured by assets. On top of that, anybody, anywhere with no permission can build product for the network or on top of the network or use the network. So you have an isolated network using 1970s coding technology okay, with limited developer uh, access because only so many developers even speak the language. And then you have an inherent monopoly, a monopoly conglomerate of banks and payment systems that don't want it fixed, because it's how they make their money. Transacting and liabilities, competing with this new network, this new network we call Lightning, that transacts with complete access for everybody, extremely low prices, instant settlement, collateralized by an asset, i.e. Bitcoin. Now, which one of those networks do you think will win a race? I mean, into the future. And the answer is the Lightning Network. In fact, all of these... Legacy networks are going to adopt and use uh, Bitcoin. And this is why I, I've been saying for a long time now Bitcoin is the ultimate tool in asymmetric warfare. It is the first time we have ever had a tool, a weapon, a technology that if the people you consider your adversary pick it up and use it, it's better for you. If you have a, like a badass supergun, the last thing you want is your enemy getting access to your super gun. Because then they can point it at you and shoot it at you. But if you're using an open network, right, an open collateralized network that anybody can participate in, and more participation is better for everybody, then if your enemy uses it, you get stronger. And your enemy doesn't want to shut you down from using it in reality, even if they do at first, because nobody likes to be disrupted. Nobody likes disruption. They don't want to lose their monopoly. But in the end, we'll realize that the more you participate, the more they benefit. Now, here's the other side of it. Let's think about the disruption for a second. I have a quote in today's episode notes, and it's from Henry Ford. He said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they'd have said they wanted faster horses. Everybody got around with a horse pulling a buggy, and if you said, well, what do you want? I want a buggy that rolls faster, a horse that can pull faster, a buggy that maybe is specially designed so that the horse uses less energy and I can get more mileage out of my horse, right they would want I, I want to be able to have four horses for the price of two horses like that's how people were thinking and henry ford said no what you want is a faster quicker better way to get from point a to point b and you don't want to have to feed it unless you're using it i.e. the car he didn't invent the car he made the car a production thing right where everybody could get one now let's go back to looking at these payment systems and understand what's going on here Every node in the Lightning Network has to be funded. Again, I have to if I want to run a node, I've got to put some skin in the game. Consider it proof of stake versus proof of work, a layer on top of Bitcoin that is proof of stake. Now, when you stake currency, it tends to not go anywhere for a long time. I'm running that node. I've collateralized that node. That note, by collateralizing it, I earn the right to transact. The more I put there, the more transactions I can run until they receive finality at the end. Because that way, if I try to steal five bucks, I lose a thousand. I'm not gonna do that, right? It's just not gonna happen. Because it doesn't make any sense to do that. So it's innately secure, but I'm going to keep the collateral there because I want to participate in the network and I want the financial reward, which is you know fractions of a penny per transaction. But I don't have to do anything. I'm now actually being my own bank. When you say you're being your own bank because you hold Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or any other crypto, you're really not. You're just self-custodying your digital property. Banks perform transactions, not just for themselves, but for others and other banks. By running a node in this network, you're actually fulfilling the role that allows for a payment system to exist. So this is quite lucrative over time, because otherwise my Bitcoin's just sitting in a cold storage wallet. So maybe I don't want to put it all there, but the bigger I am, the more I'm willing to put up. Okay, so now we have a network that transacts trillions of dollars monthly in the world the global cross-payments networks, trillions. And now Bitcoin wants to take a piece of it. So here's the question, dear listeners. How much Bitcoin has to be staked in that network to even account for 5 to 10% of the existing global payments network? And you're looking at somewhere at the low end of like half a trillion dollars, $500 billion, which right now, at with the pullback in Bitcoin pricing, is all the Bitcoin. Now, that won't happen because as you collateralize more and more Bitcoin, you lock it up. It's not on exchanges. It's not available to buy. It's gold-powering a currency system, which is what this is always supposed to have been, and it locks up like it's in a vault in that it won't move. Nobody wants to move it because it's how I play the game. So what happens when 10% or 15% of the Bitcoin it, you know, it's already have a tremendous amount locked up with long-term hodling? People like you and me that just we hold our Bitcoin, we don't spend it. Even if we spend some, we have this block that's HODL coin, right? And then we have this other block that's spendable money that we use Lightning for. Or mid sized tractions, we just use native Bitcoin chain, right? Now you lock up 10, 15, 20% of the existing supply that currently is circulating. What happens to the price of Bitcoin? And every time the Lightning network grows, it has to be collateralized, it has to lock up more Bitcoin. Think of it like Ether gas, except it's cheap. So right now, if you want to do something on the Ethereum network, you have to pay for it in Ethereum. That's where Ethereum derives all its freaking value from bored apes and other bullshit right now. But what if it was deriving its value from enabling transactions? That's Bitcoin. That's lightning. If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. You're sitting here looking at the first car, and you're looking at a car that anybody will be able to build, that nobody will be able to effectively regulate or stop. But in, but if you want to go into the business, instead of needing to have 30 different suppliers of rubber and steel and things like that, instead of then needing a building, and then any employees, you can literally open a bank for as much money as you want in your bank. You can open a bank for about 500 to to $1,000 in hardware, And then, if you want to be smart about it, you want to do some things to create some redundancy in your internet connection, in your power, okay? And then, however much you want to collateralize in your bank, you want to collateralize five grand, it's five grand. You want to collateralize a thousand, it's a thousand. You want to collateralize a million, it's a million. You collateralize whatever you want, and you're collateralizing. You're not spending. You buy the hardware and whatever infrastructure you want, depending on how much you're going to put up in stake to protect it. Because if your node just goes down for a long period of time, you can lose your stake. That's the risk. right? So the more you put in, the more infrastructure redundancy you need to protect yourself. But as long as you decide you don't want to participate anymore, or you want to reduce your collateralization, you just take your money back off your node. It's still yours. It's not gone. It hasn't been spent. So it literally makes the cost of entering the banking system as a private banker... Enabling payments, taking payments, controlling the whole situation for yourself. And you could do it for less. But I'm going to say like off-the-shelf products that are pretty much ready to go, like Start9, uh, their entry-level products and their upper-level products, five hundred thousand, fifteen hundred bucks. $1,500, you are a banker. If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said Faster Horses. Or, what's the other quote? How did we go bankrupt? Gradually, then suddenly. I believe that was Hemingway that wrote that. Okay, this is the banking system right now, and they're going to have to make a choice. Embrace or fight. And the longer they fight, the more they'll lose. The more the pack of lions will tear them apart. Imagine that you had a protocol right now, and I said, dear listeners, there's open source technology. You can go on GitHub and get it. And even if you don't know how to do the programming, you would get that other people do. And other people are building products for you. And now anybody, anywhere, anytime... Can build products for and on top of the Visa network from, in a permissionless manner. You'd be like, "Holy shit!" Well, what if the network's better and transacts in assets instead of liabilities? And you can build anybody because this is what's going to happen right now. People are like, "But strike, but must strike." They do this and they do that, and I don't like this. And J- Jack Mars and they have a monopoly, and it's a third. Body. Blah. Shut up! You don't understand. There's going to be a thousand strikes. There's going to be a thousand strikes. There's going to be a thousand wallets of Satoshi. There's going to be a thousand tip bots. There's going to be thousands of apps that use those products or their own internal product to enable commerce through application software and websites. It's the Internet of Money. People have called Bitcoin the Internet of Money since it started. They saw the future, but they didn't know how. And and that's why people built all the... One of the reasons people built all these alternative coins and shit coins and everything else. How can we actually fulfill this? Lightning. And people say, well, what if there's too many people that that monopolize the Lightning network? First of all, anybody can do it for so cheap. It hasn't happened to mining. But secondly, since Lightning is just a network, instead of screwing around and altering Bitcoin and forking it and forking it and forking it, which is basically fucking it, by trying to turn it into what Satoshi wanted or somebody's vision or some other bullshit that is just an excuse to print money for people. Instead of doing that, Bitcoin Core remains what it is. It remains pure. It remains immutable. It remains unalterable. And it just simply gets better because to get people to adopt something, you add to it. Like Segwit, you have to make a case to everybody running a node and everybody mining and unless enough people adopt it, it doesn't happen. It's actual democracy. But it's democracy of people that are smart enough to be able to do those things. And then you build a lightning on top of it. And that way, if you get something wrong, it doesn't, it doesn't mess up the underlying asset, Bitcoin. So will lightning be the only network we ever build to run on top of Bitcoin or to run Bitcoin? Probably not. Probably not. And it opens up the free market of development. So you can have anybody developing technology from some guy that learned to code from a Sam's book in his garage to MIT professors, all collaborating on technology without disrupting the underlying TCPIP protocol. But you can own a piece of TCPIP in the form of monetary TCPIP. That's Bitcoin. What this means is a literal explosion in the value of Bitcoin over time. That was already coming, but this now, in the words of the Mandalorian, is the way. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up. I want to remind you guys you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Since I pre-recorded this show and I'm off to exit and build uh, right about the time that I get done recording this show and put it out and schedule it for uh, Friday, I'll be leaving Thursday to go down there to John Bush and his folks, hang out with Nicole Awesome Sauce and a bunch of you guys as well. I don't have an item of the day. Just remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And remember, I will be back Monday with a new episode. Uh, maybe we won't talk about anything crypto Monday since I've had so much of it this week. It's been a big week for crypto. And I, since I'm doing this in advance, I don't know if we hit the floor yet for Bitcoin, but I'm telling you, everything I'm getting from kind of crypto insiders is that the biggest traders in the game see 28,000 as the back of the truck moment. Start borrowing money to buy. And borrow as much as you can to buy as much as you can. That's like the floor for the big buyers, the big money. Is that true? I don't know. Is it a rumor? I don't know. But it sounds about where I would do it. So, you know, in this $30,000 range, it's a buy zone. Dollar cost average, but when it dips, dollar cost average harder. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.